We're in Nehemiah tonight, starting a study there. Finished the book of Ezra last time, Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible with you, please open it up, book of Nehemiah. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you. Page 621. You know, it's, it's what I, uh, today, just a little free information today. Um, I was prepared for this. I think it, you know, it's, we mentioned this, I believe, last time we were going through Ezra. Nehemiah is actually the last book chronologically in the Old Testament. It takes place, when we finish in Nehemiah, it will be chronologically the 400 years of silence and then Matthew, then, then the New Testament begins. John the Baptist, the, the, the prophet then that comes on the scene proclaiming the birth of Jesus. And it, you know, just interesting as we look through that because we're, we're, we're halfway through the Old Testament starting in Genesis moving through once we finish Nehemiah. And actually, I looked at that today. Uh, Matthew in my, my Bible starts on page uh, uh, 1242 and it's 621 here. So we're bait. Halfway through the Old Testament as we're <laughs> beginning Nehemiah. Totally worthless information. <laughs> Just a little filler for you while you're turning the pages. Nehemiah, to set the stage again, if you're just joining us, we on Wednesday nights, we go through the Bible verse by verse, and again, in the Old Testament. And we've been studying through now the history of the children of Israel um, and the, their their disobedience in the, in the promised land when they get there from the beginning. I mean, we talked about that when God brought the judgment upon first the northern tribes of Israel and then the southern tribes of Judah, as, as God laid it out through his prophets, it wasn't because of something that they just started doing. This, this rebellion goes all the way back to when they first came out of Egypt. And God in his long suffering and his patience kept warning them and, and, and they would have moments in good kings occasionally in Judah, but falling back into idolatry and falling away from the Lord. Well, God eventually brings judgment to the northern 10 tribes. Assyria carries them away um, into captivity. And then the southern tribes, the tribes of Judah, carried away by the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians later then overthrowed by the, the Medes and the Persians. And just as God prophesied through, through his prophets, it would be 70 years of captivity. And we talked about that as we went through Ezra, the amazing fulfillment of that 70 years after they were carried away, the first ones come back. Zerubbabel and, and Joshua come back with the first group. And then there's that time frame we talked roughly 60 years in between there where the book of Esther takes place halfway through the book of Ezra and Esther follows in our Bibles after Nehemiah so we'll look at that then. But that fits into the middle of Ezra. Then we looked at the last couple of chapters of Ezra as he is the, the priest then that comes and reintroduces the sacrificial system um, as it was there and started cleansing through. We looked at that last time that they had already started falling back into some of the sins that they had before, marrying outside of the Jewish people, the Gentiles, and, and the, the, he dealt with that. That's where we left it off last time. We're now going to jump forward again about 14, 15 years from the end of where we left off with Ezra to where we start now the book of Nehemiah. Now, just, as, just out of curiosity, how many of you have been a part of a Bible study going through the book of Nehemiah before? Quite a few. How many of you have read ahead or at least read the story of Nehemiah? 
most. And, and the reason I say that is because I, and to kind of get into this, because I have, I've been through several men, our men's retreat actually a couple of years ago when John Randall came out and did our, our retreat. He taught through the book of Nehemiah. There's, it's used a lot of times to speak of leadership, of, you know, of a lot of different things. The book of Nehemiah is amazing, full, and I'm looking forward to studying through that together with you. But we can have a tendency sometimes when we get into a familiar story like this is forget that as we're reading along this, Nehemiah didn't know the end of the story. When, he's go, when we're going through this, this is happening live to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is recording this. And it's interesting when we, when we look at that, and I, I try to, and I try to encourage you to do the same, to put yourself in the story, to, 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 to put yourself in that position. Because what we're going to see when we do that and we understand that Nehemiah, just like us, there was a, this, this man, as we can see now, we see in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, that's November, December time frame, in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that 20th year, that meaning of the reign of Artaxerxes, Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men came from Judah. Nehemiah, if we look down at the very end of chapter 1, it says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. That was his job. That is what he did as a slave to, to, to Artaxerxes. He was the cupbearer. Now that carried with it a lot of other additional responsibilities probably, but his primary responsibility was to make sure that the wine that the king was going to drink wasn't poisoned. And they did, he did that, not by testing it in a test tube, but he'd drink it first. And if he lived the king would have some. And so, and it was obviously because of that, he's very close to the king, but he's, he's an ordinary guy. And when we begin and we start looking through this, he's, he's a guy just like us, a man, woman, we can relate to him. And we need to understand that he is here because God put him there. We, we, he, he was part of those that were carried away. He was born in exile, but his, his parents carried away into captivity. Nothing happened in Nehemiah's life that was a mistake. He wasn't there by accident. And I make a big deal out of that at the beginning, and I'll, you'll, hopefully it'll make sense as we move through this today, because one of the things that strikes me about Nehemiah as we move through this is this guy is like a superhero of the faith. That's why the book of Nehemiah is studied so often in, in groups and in Bible studies and everything because of the, what we're going to see takes place with an ordinary man who loved the Lord God, who had faith. We're going to see some of those characteristics as we move through, but the first thing to, to understand is God put him there. And we mentioned last time in Ezra, you'll remember, Artaxerxes had given a decree 15 years earlier that said anybody who wants to go to Jerusalem can go. Nehemiah didn't. And I, I, I've heard a lot of you know, people talking about that, that you know, those people, they weren't, didn't have strong enough faith to go. They weren't like Ezra that went and all that kind of stuff. I believe totally differently. When I look at a man like Nehemiah, and we're going to study and we'll see this through here, he was a man of great faith, great love for the Lord, great love for the word of God, and great love for the city of Jerusalem. He stayed, I believe, because God didn't tell him to go. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah 29, 
this is Jeremiah speaking before they went into captivity, or after they had recently take, been taken into captivity. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. God sent them. Again, the Babylonians thought that they were conquering the world. No, God was in control of it all. I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease. Don't, don't go there and feel like, you know, oh, this is horrible. This is terrible. I shouldn't be here. No, I've sent you there. Prosper while you're there. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare and you will have welfare. I believe Nehemiah knew that, believed it, and practiced it. He prayed for Babylon. He prayed for Artaxerxes. And I believe that because of that, he took great pride in the fact that he was, that was his job to do that. However, we also know that he was a man who loved the Lord, loved his people, loved Jerusalem. But we have to, we look at that and we could say, you know, you look at the lives of some of these great heroes and remember, they don't know the end of their story either. Like Joseph. We know the story of Joseph. Brothers couldn't stand him. Brothers sold him into slavery to, into, to, to Egypt, told his dad, told their dad that his, their brother was killed, sold into slavery. He gets to Egypt. He does the best. He honors God with everything, and he gets thrown in jail because his boss's wife wanted to have an affair with him. He wouldn't do it, so she set him up, and he goes to jail. While he's in jail, he's, he's honoring God there. Two, two cellmates he has are, gonna, are, the, are a cupbearer for Pharaoh and, a, and the baker, and he interprets their dreams for them. And when they, when they go out, he says, hey, remember me. Don't forget me in here. What did they do? They got out. They forgot him. Sooner or later, it comes around that, that he interprets Pharaoh's dream, becomes the second in command. And, and at the end of it all, remember, Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God orchestrated all of these things to put me in this place at this time. You know, we look at, and there's so many examples of that, obviously. Daniel is another one that we look at, that taken into exile, and God used him in great and mighty ways. The disciples, all of these, all of these individual men, I was just going through that in my mind. Matthew, as I was reading in Matthew today, remembering when we studied through Matthew in that story. Here's this young kid, got a tax collecting business, thinking everything's kind of pretty good, and Jesus walks by and said, follow me. Me? You want me to follow you? And he left everything and followed Jesus. You know, Peter, James, John, Andrew, fishermen, follow me. You know, Jesus didn't pick the, the top of the class. As a matter of fact, all the disciples, they were fishermen and tax collectors because they were the bottom of the class. If they were the top of the class. They'd have kept on going in rabbinical schools, but they weren't. And Jesus chose them and changed the world with them. We look at these and, and I just, I'm struck by the fact God uses regular people. He doesn't, he doesn't go after all the superstars. He uses regular people. Nehemiah is a regular guy. We see in 1 Corinthians, verse that we go to often with this, but it bears reading again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brethren. 
There were not many wise according to the flesh. According to the flesh. That doesn't mean that God just picks dumb people. (laughs) Not many wise according to the flesh. The world says if you believe in creation, you're a fool. Not many wise according to the flesh. You know what the the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, that that, that we're, we're mentioned in the hall of faith because we believe that God created the world. We're mentioned in the Bible with that. The world says we're foolish though. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Verse 20, or verse 30. And by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In Christ Jesus, we have all these things so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Nehemiah, a regular guy, no special education, no special experience. Just a man who loved God. He was in the right place at the right time because God put him there and he embraced that. And I want to encourage anybody here who thinks that you're in the wrong place, that God made a mistake putting you where you are, that God must have a different place for you and you're just waiting for that transfer. Grow where you're planted. Let God use you right where he has placed you. He doesn't make mistakes. He's looking for us to embrace where God has us. He's looking for us with the right heart to just say, God, I know you have me here for a purpose. I don't see it right now as Nehemiah no doubt didn't see it right now. On the day before this happened where we're going to start reading in verse 2, I bet you he was wondering, I wonder what this is all about. I seem to be just standing here making sure this king doesn't kick over. What is, why am I here, Lord? And it all changes in verse 2. It says, Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. They returned from being in Judah. They returned from seeing what was going on there. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. We see here again the heart of Nehemiah. And one of the things that I want to encourage all of us, because there's several things that we can learn from this man if we want to be used by God. Notice his genuine concern He asked, and he cared. How many times do we, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, how many times do we say, hey, how you doing? And that's just an empty statement. I'm not saying you don't care about me when you ask me that, but that just becomes kind of like something that just kind of flies out of our mouth. It's like the second part of high. Nehemiah truly, genuinely cared what's going on. How are they doing? Most, the people he's asking about, he's never met. 
These are people, like I said, that went with Ezra, went before the, 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 the remnant that is there. How are they doing? Truly caring. And how is Jerusalem doing? And the report's not good. We left off in Ezra. There's things that are happening. There's revival taking place in Jerusalem. And I believe that that continued. But the report that comes back is the walls are in ruin. The gates have been burned with fire. They've been back now for over 75 years. And the walls are still in, in ruin. And the gates are still the way they were when, when Nebuchadnezzar left after he destroyed Jerusalem 150 years before this. And that's bad. Back then, walls were extremely important around a city. Walls provided protection from the enemy on the outside, but walls also provided separation as, as from, from the outside as well. And that being broken down, and because the walls were broken down, notice it says they're in great distress. And the reproach around, the people around them, looked upon them with disdain. He genuinely cared. His heart was genuinely moved towards them. And we know that. Look at his response from what it says. He says, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I... I'm again challenged by this because not only does he ask with genuine concern, he listens with, with genuine concern and compassion. So often, again, I, I, I wonder at times, and there's, I've, I've seen it played out in movies or in, in you know, skits or whatever, you know, hey, how you doing? And, and the response is, you know, it's, it's horrible, da-da-da-da-da, and the other guy goes, oh, great, well, good to see you, because didn't listen at all to what the response was. Again, Nehemiah genuinely was concerned when he asked, but when he heard the response, the, the, the compassion that moves him, look, it, it says, when I heard these words, I sat down. He stopped what he was doing. Whatever it was at that time, he stopped and he sat down. That that again challenges me because I can get so busy and even though I have concern and I have care for something that I may have heard, do, am I interruptible in my, in my process, in my day, in the things that I have going on? Am I interruptible enough to where I can stop and take genuine concern in the situation of someone else, in the situation of, of, of others perhaps that I don't even know? I stopped and notice again here the compassion. I wept and mourned for days when I heard this. He was so moved by what he heard. Uh, he gets to, to fasting and praying, but I think to see his heart as he begins his prayer is an important thing to camp out on in just a second because I think again, his heart is where it is because of who he is with the Lord. This is the heart of God that he has that would move him to that type of compassion. We see the heart of Jesus. It tells us in, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, it's speaking of him, verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. 
He saw the people. He saw their condition. He knew that they were dispirited he, like, and, and distressed, just like the people we see here, great distress and reproach that they have. And because he saw that and he understood the reason behind it, they're like sheep without a shepherd, moved with compassion for them, not just feeling sorry for them, but moved to the point of compassion. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Moving, compassion should move us to do something. And the first thing it should move us to do is pray. And that's what Jesus said. Moved with compassion, he told the disciples to pray. Pray, beseech the Lord, and notice that's what he does. He is moved to prayer. He goes to prayer, and I love that, before the God of heaven. Verse five, I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He approaches God in his prayer after, after praying and fasting and, and having this heart of compassion. He goes to God and he first addresses God in a way that says, I, I know who I'm coming to speak to. And again, thinking as, as Jesus, the disciples came to him and they said, teach us how to pray. How to pray, not what to pray, how to pray. And Jesus gives a model prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It really should maybe be more the disciples' prayer because they said pray in this manner. But how does that start? Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. And I see that same flow here as Nehemiah begins that prayer. Who are we dealing with when we go in prayer? And I, I mentioned this up at the men's retreat. It's, it's one of my, my favorite things for me to reflect on sometimes. But when the, the psalmist says, magnify the Lord with me. Magnify the Lord with me. And that's really, again, what we do when we worship God and we go before him in prayer. And when you magnify something, do you make the object bigger? No. Magnifying something does not make the object bigger. It appears bigger to us, but the object doesn't change. Guys, we can't make God bigger. But when we begin our prayer with, as, as Nehemiah does here, where he says, oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, the great and awesome God, not a great and awesome God, the great and awesome God. I am talking to the creator, almighty God. And just like Jesus said, our father in heaven, holy is your name. We're going before almighty, all-powerful God. Our Father. We're children of God. We have direct access to God our Father. In heaven. I think that's important that we, that we again, not that God has an ego trip that he needs to be addressed with a certain title. That's not, that's not it. I think it's important at times that we remind ourselves, again, as we're praying, who we're talking to. Our Father in heaven. He's in heaven. He's got a totally different vantage point than you and I do. And that's important when we're going to him in prayer because if he saw things the way we see them, <laughs> we'd be wasting our time. He sees what we can't. He knows what we don't. 
So when we go to him in prayer, he has resources that we have no idea about. And Nehemiah, when he goes to God in his prayer, he's going with that understanding. God, you understand things that I don't. I'm coming to you. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Holy is your name. The God who preserves and keeps his commandments. God doesn't need to be reminded of that. Oh, by the way, God, remember, you keep your promises. No, he's holy, and therefore he can't break his promises. He's holy, therefore it is, it is who he is. It is part of who he is to be faithful to his covenant that he has made. He, Nehemiah is not telling him this to remind God of his faithfulness and loving kindness and his covenant. He's doing that, again, to reinforce that to, in his own heart as he goes before God. If you were, I mentioned John Randall a couple of years ago came out and did our men's retreat for us. And the one statement he made at this point in the conference, I have it written down and I, I go back to it often. God's past faithfulness demands my present trust. God is always faithful. He has always been faithful. He will always be faithful. That's part of his holiness. He can't be anything but faithful. He can't be unfaithful. And because of that, that demands my present trust. I I must trust him because of that. And we're going to see as Nehemiah moves out with great trust in the Lord. But he is the covenant keeper. He is the loving, kind one. He is the one who keeps his covenants and his promises. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. His persistence now coming before you day and night. And we're going to see as we get down here in, in just a little bit, this isn't for just a day or two. This is an extended period of time that Nehemiah is going before the Lord in prayer, seeking the Lord, waiting on the Lord, pleading with the Lord, persistently asking, seeking, knocking. See, that's what Jesus said, right? Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. I've heard people before have, have been critical of others because they continue to pray for something saying, You're, you have a lack of faith. If you've prayed it, God is gonna answer. I think it takes great faith to continue to pray, to continue to ask and seek and knock because that's what God said to do. That's what Jesus told us to do. So in great faith, even though I have not seen an answer yet, I am going to continue to ask and seek and knock. And here Nehemiah, before you now day and night, and not with his own personal requests, interceding on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. Notice too, as this continues, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we, not they, we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you 
and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. No excuses. Not, again, not they, not them. He realizes, I, I, am, I am among them, just like Isaiah when he, when he was before the Lord. You read the first five chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is pointing around, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. Chapter six, when he's before the Lord, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. We get, guys, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You've heard that more probably. And Nehemiah here realizes I'm no better than they. If I, have, if I am not in the same sin that they are, it's by the grace of God. But I am a sinner too. And I am coming to you, Lord, not asking for justice. I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking for grace. Remember, verse 8, again, not, to re- not, not so that God has forgotten, but remember the word which you commanded to your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen chosen to cause my name to dwell. He's quoting from two different places in the, in the um, Pentateuch, Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's a man of the word. He knows God's word. He's not using it to manipulate God, but he is using it to say, God, your word says. And when he says, remember, Remember your word, Lord. Remember your promise. Again, it's not because God forgot. It's just bringing this, in, and, and God, God loves that. When we bring his word to him and say, Lord, your word says, and you are faithful, and I am trusting in your word, and I believe in you because you are faithful. And guys, that's why it's, I, it, we encourage this all the time. I encourage you regularly, be in the word of God. And as you are praying and God lays something on your heart, it happens so often where you'll be reading through and it just becomes such a personal thing. God, this is, this is your word. And I take this I take this for me. I claim this, this, this for me. This is not name it and claim it. This is God's word. I can tell you right, guarantee you right now, nowhere in here does it say there's a portion your future. So that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> but it does say when, it's, when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You can claim that as a promise. It doesn't matter what you feel. You might feel alone. You might feel deserted in a particular time, in a particular situation. But that's where a word, when you're reading that, you say, I claim this. Lord, you said you would never leave me or forsake me. And you can own that. That's a promise of God. That we're children of God, even that, that we know that. I'm a child of God. I can claim that because the word of God says that. And when we remind God of his promises, it's, it's just, I, I love this again, you know, heavenly father, not like earthly father. Because I can tell you that used to annoy me when my daughter would sometimes remind me, dad, you said, you promised that if I did this, and I'd be like, oh, how do you remember all those things? <laughs> 
but he knew God's word. And he said, God, you promised that if we humble ourselves, if we, if we turn back to you, you'll be gracious to us. You'll gather us back. They are your servants, verse 10, and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. You redeemed, you brought us out of Egypt. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Now we're going to look at this day that he's talking about when we get to chapter two. We're not going to get there tonight. But a couple of things with this. In verse 11, it says, be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. Who delight to revere your name. Who delight in the fact that in keeping God's name holy, to be, to be reverential, to, to fear God, to have that, that holy reverential fear of God and take delight in that. Psalm 37 says, verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. Delight yourself in the Lord completely. No what ifs. Completely delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If we look at, if we look at chapter two for just a moment, verse one, it came about in the month of Nisan, which is March or April in the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes. We started in November or December. Nehemiah is praying for at least four months. Four months before today comes. When he says, grant me success today. Four months. Might I suggest that the delight of his heart had changed in that four months? Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. When he first knew this, I'm going to, spoiler alert, he's going to go to Artaxerxes and ask that he be sent to Jerusalem with resources to rebuild the wall. I'm, I'm going out on a limb to say when his brother told him back on day, verse two here, that wasn't his heart. But he sought the Lord. And he was, he was going before a holy God. We looked at his prayer. And as he prayed that, and as he dedicated and delighted himself in whatever God would have, God placed that desire in his heart. And then God delights to answer that prayer. It wasn't there to begin with. 
But as he focused on the Lord and as he, as he did with the Psalm 37 verse, delight yourself completely, no what ifs. Commit your ways to him totally, no buts. Trust also in him, completely in him, no plan B. God, whatever it is that you'll do, whatever it is that you'll have, God looks for a man like that. Again, we're talking, remember, back to the beginning, Nehemiah is an ordinary guy who just was moved with compassion, who sought the Lord. God places this desire on his heart. He offers that up in prayer, and God says, you betcha. He will bring forth your righteousness. Psalm 37 continues, as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Wait patiently for him. He prayed for four months. How many times do I give up too soon? I moved with something. I feel God leading in a direction. I'm praying about it. Maybe even fasting. And I give up before I get the answer. I give up before God places that there, does what he does with Nehemiah. Four months. Four months. Guys, waiting on the Lord is not wasted time. Waiting on the Lord is investment time. Sometimes I think we lose sight of that fact that we could say, all right, Lord, I'm not hearing from you. I'm ready. And he, if, if he just like, not quite. <laughs> but maybe you are ready. Maybe Nehemiah was ready after three months, but Artaxerxes wasn't yet. We can't forget that we're not the only player in things. And God is moving. God is orchestrating this providential, all-powerful, almighty God. He's moving on the most powerful man on the planet, Artaxerxes. And we're going to see that not only does Artaxerxes say, yeah, go. Well, you're just going to have to read ahead. <laughs> but God is doing something. And so often, I, I admit, patience is not my long suit. And like we talked about on, on, on Sunday, that's when I get into my flesh, into self, when I get impatient. Because we know the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. And if we're finding ourselves getting impatient, that's where we got to say, Lord, I, 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 need to, I need to lift my eyes higher, like we talked this weekend. I, I'm looking at the flesh. I'm looking in my understanding. Again, as we... Isaiah chapter 40, again, waiting on the Lord. Do you not know, verse 28, Isaiah 28, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired? No matter how weary and tired you may be in your, in, in your situation, in your prayer, know that the one who is fighting for you never gets weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. It is beyond understanding. I am so glad for that. That God's understanding is way beyond mine. 
Romans 11:33. Oh, the depth, the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. I'm so glad for that. Because he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what I could ask or think. His ways are so much higher than our ways. His thoughts than our thoughts. As far as the heavens are above the earth are his ways above our ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. And that's, that's, that's an awesome thing. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though the youths grow weary and tired and vigorous, uh, and vigorous youth men, young men may stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Are you seeking the Lord about something? Have, has the Lord placed something on your heart that you have been, you've been praying, that you've been diligently seeking him in, and you are saying, I'm, I'm, I'm getting tired of waiting. I'm becoming impatient. I'm growing weary. You can come to this. This is your word, Lord. This is your promise. Those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Don't give up. I look at Nehemiah in the time that he's in, and we can look at this in, in the weeks to come. You know, there's, like I said, there's been countless Bible studies done with Nehemiah, and the walls can mean this, and the walls can mean that, and all of this type of stuff. But bottom line, the thing I guess I want every one of us to go away with tonight that's just challenged me again today is God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. When things look hopeless and desperate, God uses ordinary people. He will move on your heart. And if you are willing to look upon the, the things that God brings to you with his heart, his heart of compassion, and you are willing to do what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, you know, look upon compassion. And he says, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest. That he would send out workers into the harvest. That you would, that you would go before the Lord as he lays it on your heart. On behalf of others. On behalf of, of our country. Of our city. Of families. Of individuals. People you don't know. People that, you, that are, you work with. Whatever it may be as God places that on your heart. Go before the Lord. Beseech him in prayer. That God would send someone. But be ready. Because he's going to make you ready to be that someone. Because I, I love this. It says that, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Five verses later, Jesus, then Jesus sent out the 12 after instructing them. <laughs> he sent them out. After he told them, beseech the Lord to, to send out, then he sent them out. He's going to move on your heart. And as he does, and as you pray, and as you're diligent in that, God is going to place on your heart. He's gonna, and then he'll give you the desires of your heart. It's, a, it's an amazing thing that God, again, would use us, ordinary people, like he uses Nehemiah, as we will see. I do encourage you to read ahead because, again, spoiler alert, he prayed four months 
The wall has been in, has been in ruins for 150 years. The wall all the way around the city. 52 days is all it took to rebuild the wall. A month and a half. 52 days. Ordinary guy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for your promises, and for the fact that you are faithful. And Lord, we look around at the world around us, whether the world as a whole and all of the things that are going on with the uh, hurricanes and the natural things that are taking place to North Korea, to the things that are taking place in the Middle East, and just everywhere around us, Lord, we look at our own country and uh, just the, the fighting, and it just seems like everything is so out of control. Lord, we come to you tonight as your children and ask that you would just use ordinary people like us to make a difference for you. Lord, I'm challenged again reading this story of how you used Nehemiah. We remember how you used Joseph, Moses, David, the disciples, just ordinary, ordinary people, Esther, Ruth, Mary, or just ordinary people who just were willing to be used by you, who were willing to have their hearts moved by you. Lord, would you do that work in us? We sit here and we look at these things and we say, how in the world could I, could I make a difference? But Lord, we just put our lives in your hands. And so, Lord, would you, would you move on us? Would you give us that compassion? I'm challenged by Nehemiah's heart and his prayer. Lord, would you do that work in me? Would you do that work in us? Have your way in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week.